what images, thoughts come to mind when you hear the word religion? Could be positive, could be negative. What's that? Man-made. Man-made. Wow. What else? War. Oops. What'd you say? War. War. Religious war. What else? Rules. Rules. And what was the other thing? Bounds. Bounds? Like? No, bounds. And rules? My handwriting is terrible. (laughs) What else? Religion. What's that? Piety. Piety. All right. Self-righteous. Like, like pride. <laughs> that does say self-righteous, by the way. <laughs> pride. Tradition. Discipline. How many of you, when you hear the word discipline, how many of that, how many, for, for how many of you is that a positive word? Cups, right? Discipline's an interesting word. What else? A child, it was negative as a, as a grown-up. <laughs> sure, that's a good point. That's a good point. There's a dark side of discipline and a light side of discipline. Anything else? Religion. Instructions. Now, how many of you want to be a part of this? Anybody want to sign up? Woo! Yeah. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called God Delusion, New Atheism. says, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. That's his critique. Larry Flint said, religion has caused more harm. (laughs) Why is that funny? (laughs) I just so happened to have a Larry Flint quote. Religion has caused more harm than any other idea since the beginning of time, except for Larry Flint's idea. Only one person laughed at that. <laughs> There's nothing good. That worries me that only one person laughed at that. <laughs> There's nothing good I can say about it, he says. People use it as a crutch. And C.S. Lewis actually said, which of the religions of the world gives to its followers the greatest happiness? While it lasts, he says, the religion of worshiping oneself is best. Lewis's idea. I think none of us would disagree that... Uh, whether the word religion in your own mind conjures up negative images, I think we would all agree that as a culture, as a whole, religion is kind of a dirty word, right? It's, it's typically not something that uh, we want to associate with or be a part of. Or we could say the culture as, at large doesn't want to associate with religion or be a part of it. Uh, so this morning what we're going to be doing, and, and actually over the next couple of weeks, this is kind of the first of eight to ten weeks of looking at this, this uh, thing we call religion. And what we're going to be doing is actually listening to the modern critique of religion. Where modern people say religion is wrong, where it's bad, how it's harmful. And actually listening, listening to that. Um, and then also looking at ancient, ancient stories of what I would consider to be real spirituality. Pointing, to, pointing us to something greater than religion. So today we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, if you have your Bible. If you have a blue Bible, it is page 14. 
If you uh, don't have a Bible and you, you'd like one, there's blue Bibles sitting around. Just raise your hand. We've got some extras. And Melissa can get you a Bible if, if you need a Bible. All right. Are we there? Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into these ancient words. God, thank you for this opportunity once again to gather together and first and foremost to bring glory to you. We worship you this morning through song, through teaching, through sharing, through confession, through meditation. And as we do look into these ancient words, I, uh, I ask that you speak to us. Show us uh, the reality of, of who you are and of who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 18, and we don't have to read the whole thing again because Matt already has. Genesis uh, 18, let's start with verse 17. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham... What I am going to do, what I'm about to do, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. So here's like, you may be familiar, by the way, with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think everybody uh, religious or irreligious, churched or unchurched, probably has an idea of this, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, if nothing else, because if you, if you listen to some radio stations or some different preachers, you're going to hear modern-day comparisons of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, this city over here is Sodom and Gomorrah. This city over here is Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, I've actually heard people say Baltimore is modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> which we're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But one thing that we don't talk a lot about is these preceding thoughts of God and actually his interaction with Abraham before the city of Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today. So God here is actually, we get a glimpse into his mind and he's actually asking himself, should I share with Abraham what I'm about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? Here's a city that is, is uh, broken. It's, it's evil. Should I share with Abraham what I'm about to do? And God actually decides, yes, I think I will share with him what I'm going to do. So then the Lord said in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they had done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, again, we, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think of the sin of, sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we always think immediately of immorality as the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's this city, and this is why people will point at different cities and say, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, I want to think, and I think this is so important, all right? Track with me here for a second. Isaiah, chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I, actually, I have it written right here. I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. In verse 23, in Isaiah, it started, he starts out by talking to the leaders of Sodom. So Isaiah, looking back, at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this prophet is actually talking to the, to the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah, the rulers of Sodom. And he says this to them, to Sodom. He says, your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They love all bribes 
and chase after gifts. They do not defend the, the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Why did God hear this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah? Why did he destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Number one, the rulers were greedy. They trampled over people. They, they wanted to get as much as they could get. They wanted to have as much as they could have. It was all about them. And they would do whatever it took to get that. Number two, they, they trampled over their orphans and their widows. The orphans, they would take advantage of them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't look out for them. The widows, they would take advantage of. Anybody who was vulnerable, they were taking advantage of. And then also, as we see later in the story in Genesis, there is this extreme hate within Sodom and Gomorrah for those who are foreigners, for those who are on the outside, for those who are not like them. If you're not part of our city, if you're not one of us, there, there is this animosity. How do we know this? What is their usual uh, greeting for visitors to the city? Anybody from the outside who's coming into their city. If you went to visit Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? You know, southwest.com, ticket to Sodom and Gomorrah, what's that, 69 bucks? If you go, to Air, if you go through Air Train, you have to fly through Atlanta. <laughs> I recommend Southwest. Direct flight. You go to visit Sodom and Gomorrah. They're greeting. Hello, welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, here's our welcome center. They're greeting for you. Is that every man in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah has every right to you. You know what I'm saying? You guys tracking here? Every right. Every right to you. It is their custom to the point where when, when these men actually go down to, to see the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, when they get there, the men of the city are so outraged because they're not following. The, I mean, this is their law. It's protected under their law. Male, female, doesn't matter what you are. All the men are going to enjoy you. They, they, they come in to visit the city and the, the men are so outraged in this city that they're literally banging down the door. Literally breaking down the door to welcome the visitors to their city. So this is the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? Great injustice. Great hate. Just permeating through the city. The orphans and the widows are looked down on, are taken advantage of. The rulers just want to get whatever they can and then the people that live there, the men that live there, by the way. The men that live there can have every right to any foreigner, to, to any, anybody from another city coming to visit a relative. So, God goes. We, most of us probably know how the story goes. He, he sees the city, and the city is as bad as the outcry against them. So essentially, he tells Abraham, look, the city's going to be destroyed. At which point, I, I want to look at Abraham's response. Look at verse 23. Then Abraham approached him. Abraham approached God and said this. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city, Abraham asks. 
Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up, uh, spoke up again. Now, I've been so bold to, uh, to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous is, uh, is, is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? Now, do you get the oddity of what's happening here? Like how bizarre this is? God, and by the way, I think it's so interesting that all throughout the scriptures and all throughout time, I truly believe, I'm convinced that God reveals himself to man in ways that man can relate to him. So we're, we're liver, living here in this ancient agricultural uh, bartering society. And God approaches Abraham and, and says, this is what I'm going to do. And then Abraham, what does he start doing? What is he doing here? He's bartering, right? We don't really recognize it as quickly in our Western culture today. Uh, some other cultures may. But Abraham starts bartering. He's like, okay, if there are this many good, good people, if there's this many righteous people, would you give me this? Would you give him this? Would you make the exchange for 50? And God says, all right, I'll make the exchange for 50. If there's 50 righteous, I'll make that exchange, and I won't, I won't, I'll, I'll, everybody in the whole city will be counted as righteous because of these 50 people. Then Abraham comes back. All right, what if there's 45? And I like how he says, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing but dust. I'm nothing but ashes. You know, excuse me, pardon me, God. I'm nothing. And I understand. And I, I love Abraham's humility. He says, what if there's 45? God says, all right, for 45, I'll, I'll spare the city. I'll declare everyone righteous in the city for 45. What if there's 40, Abraham says. What if there's 40? God says, all right, for 40. What if there's 30? Watering back and forth. Abraham's good at this, you know? I'll, I'll spare it for 30. What if there's 20? Abraham comes back. God says, all right, for 20 righteous people in the city, if I find 20, righteous, 20 people that are not living like everyone else in the city, then I will count everyone as, as righteous. I'll count everyone as good, and I'll spare everyone for the sake of 20. And then Abraham comes back one last time. This bold request. God, all right, what if there are 10 in the city? This entire city, I don't know how many. What if there are, what if there are 10 righteous people? Will you spare the entire city for the sake of 10? Now, my, my, my question is this. Abraham is not part of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not a citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah. He has family there, but, but they could easily walk out. He's not part of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> Why is Abraham begging God to save this city when the reality is, is this city poses a threat to his own lineage? The, own, the nation that's going to develop out of Abraham, this is a city that could very well possibly pose a threat. This is a city that if Abraham actually goes and visits there, I mean, it's not like Abraham enjoys the nightlife of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know? It's not like he's hitting up a karaoke bar, right? In Sodom and Gomorrah. 
couple of these guys went karaoke last night, and I heard uh, it was awesome. But Abraham wasn't going to Sodom and Gomorrah for karaoke. You know, he wasn't. He wouldn't visit the city. Why? Because if he visited the city, what would happen? Like, what happened to everybody else that visited the city? Why would Abraham be begging God to spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah when it is a city filled of, with, with greedy rulers, with gross immorality, with, with uh, self-righteous, self-centered people who are power-driven, they're socially excluding anybody that's not like them. Why would Abraham beg God for this city? Now, talking about religion, there is a stark contrast between uh, religious people today, what we would consider religious people, and Abraham. A huge contrast between those who are religious and Abraham. Why? How so? Thoughts? Abraham was spiritual. Abraham was spiritual. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Religious people, number one, want to know who's in and who's out. Us and them. Religious people want to know where their boundaries are, who's in their circle. And then they will look down on anybody else who is not. Right? I mean, this is the modern critique of religion. Uh, there's a guy named, named Marilyn Westfall who wrote this book. And in it, he talks about where the modern critique of religion actually came from. And he basically says that the modern critique of religion came from three different guys. And so basically, any, any critique that, that you, you may hear today... Uh, of religion, including all of these, actually comes from one of these, or if not all, of these three guys. It all stems from here. So when somebody says, you know, even even a simple thing, like I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to have to go to church every Sunday, or I don't want to become a Christian because uh, they're judgmental. Within every critique of religion, one of these th three guys exists, and they are, number one, Freud, Number two, Marx. Number three, Nietzsche. You know those names? I want to do this. We're not going to get all scholarly here. But I want to, for the sake of our discussion on religion, talk about Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche and their critique of religion. All right? Are we all in? Are we there? We good to go? All right. Freud essentially says this. Religion is... Self-justification of the people. Freud would essentially say that, that religious people have invented a God which they placate for their own benefit. We see this in kids all the time. My, my kids included. <laughs> you know, they're swimming in the toilet, they're breaking things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just the other day <laughs> just, I don't know where I was going with that no, I do actually just the other day uh, one of my daughters I won't say who 
one of my daughters came to me and, well, first of all, I heard, I heard one of them screaming. <laughs> like she just lost an arm or something. And I think to myself, well, if she lost an arm, I'm sure they're going to come down and tell me. <laughs> so I s- stayed at, at the table where I was eating my cereal. And so the other one comes down. And as soon as she comes running down, I know that she's the guilty party. Right? So the other one's still up there screaming. And she comes running down. And then she stands right in front of me like this. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> and I'm like, why is so-and-so crying? Because I hit her. <laughs> so I discipline her, right? About 15 minutes later, they're back up there playing. I hear the same one screaming again. Ah, she just lost the other arm. <laughs> Here comes the other, my, the same daughter, coming, running back down the stairs, stands in front of me. What happened this time? I hit her again. <laughs> So this is, and actually, Freud, when, he, when he, he actually used children as a case study to make this statement. He actually observed a, a child who was constantly being disciplined by their parents. She would, she would do something wrong. She would disobey. The parents would discipline. And then she would do it again. And then the parents would discipline. And her behavior was actually getting worse the more she was disciplined. And what Freud said is that, is that children use their parents, essentially placate their parents to appease their conscience. They, they do something wrong, and they want to do it again, but they have to pay for what they just did. So they use their parents then to discipline them, to pay, pay what they, for what they just did, to appease their conscience, and now they can go back, and they're set free, and they can do it again. And Freud says it's, and this is so strong. I mean, this, if this doesn't hit you to the core of maybe even your own spirituality, Freud said this is what religious people do. Is they invent a God whom they can serve, whom they can worship, so that they can go about whatever lifestyle they, they choose. A great example is... The Godfather. There's the Godfather sitting there in church while the henchmen are out killing people, right? I mean, essentially, it's like we want to do whatever we want to do. We want to live however we want to live. And we've invented this nice God, which we can come and, and which we can, we, we can go to church, sort of like penance, if you would. Or we can go to confession or we can, we can uh, sing praises to or we can read the Bible of and, uh, and, and all it does is it, it appeases our conscience. It makes us feel better about our actions so that we can go about back to the life that we, uh, we like to live. This is Freud's critique of religion. Now, Marx's critique was similar, but a little bit tweaked. Marx, Marx actually said that religion is sort of the... Um, people use religion to socially exclude other people. So it's sort of the social conscience, if you would, of a people. Meaning, uh, have, you, have you guys seen Elizabeth, The Golden Age, the movie? It's a good movie, by the way. I would, I would recommend it. But at the beginning of the movie, I think this is a perfect example of what Marx would say this is religion. At the beginning of the movie, 
the opening credit says this. It says, Spain is the most powerful uh, empire in the world. The next line is, is, England is the only nation that stands in her way. And then the next line is something along the lines of, Philip of Spain has instituted religious war against England. This is Mark's critique of religion right here in a nutshell. The people say, we've got the truth. We've got it. This is, this is the reality. This is the truth. This is who God is. And God loves us. And he doesn't love anybody else who doesn't have this truth. And so then they use that to oppress other people. And the religion actually, Marx actually had used the term the opium of the people. Are you familiar with that? The opium of the which basically, opium was a painkiller. So a modern equivalent would be the Oxycontin of the people, or the morphine of the people, or the ibuprofen of the people, or the Tylenol of the people, depending on your drug of choice. <laughs> it makes people feel better about their sad state. We are a very oppressive regime, and we use religion to numb us, to make us feel okay about what we're doing, to serve us. That's Marx. So Freud, religion creates self-righteous people, people who are using God to simply do whatever they want to do, and they, they're, they're doing these Freud, or Marx says that religion is a uh, uh, social crutch, if you would. It's, it, religious people use it to oppress other people. And then Nietzsche said something that was completely different than the other two. And really, he would probably even include the other two in, what, in their own statements. Nietzsche said everything is power-driven. And so religion then is used, or people use God, religion is using God, Nietzsche would say, to create power for yourself. And then he would say, all religious people do this. He would say, you teach about love, but are you really motivated by love? Or are you motivated by power? You teach about justice, doing right, serving the poor, but are you really motivated to serve the poor? Are you really motivated by justice? Or is it just that power struggle that everybody has? That's Nietzsche's critique. Book of Eli. See, I'm using movies like crazy. They just pop. Book of Eli. Have you guys seen that movie? What, do you guys don't watch movies? <laughs> you have seen Elizabeth? You haven't seen Book of Eli? You seen Dumb and Dumber? I could use Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, can, I can keep on coming with him. In Book of Eli... What is he protecting? I'm going to give it all away to you guys. What's he protecting? The book. What is the book? It's the Bible, right? Why is, why is Eli protecting the Bible? Why is he trying to get it, uh, who, or who is he trying to get it away from, we should say? From people that want to get their hands on the book. Because it's the only Bible left. It's like a post-apocalyptic world. I don't know what it's been destroyed by. But... And everybody wants this book. Why? Because there's power in it. And there's this... this Chief villain, if you would, the, the bad guy in the movie, uh, who kind of runs this like little western front. You know, he's got these thugs working for him, and and uh, it's a little over the top. I think it is what it is. And so this guy is like brutally trying to get this book. I mean, ruthless in his attempt, killing people, everybody, in order to, to find this book. And there's actually this line in the movie. Where the bad guy, I don't even know if he has a name. I just call him the bad guy. 
the bad guy looks at his, his thugs, and he's like, we've got to get that book. He says something along the lines, if we have the book, if we have it, we can do it all over again. Which even gives you this idea that, that, that he was possibly a, a preacher before you know, the world changed, in the, in the old world. Somebody who, who found this book and they saw such a great wealth of like information in here and you can use this to control people. And so he's, doing, he's not motivated by love. He's not motivated by justice. He's not motivated by Jesus. He's motivated by power to preach love, preach Jesus, preach justice. This is Nietzsche's critique of religion right here in a nutshell. Now Westfall in his book What, what he argues is that the church needs to listen to the modern critique of religion. We need to learn from these three guys. The religion, the definition, according, this is the modern critique of religion right here. According to Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. Religion is using God, all right? Religion is using God to accrue power through our performance. And the result is self-righteousness, social ex- exclusion, and a power trip. Religion is using God to accrue power through our performance. And the result is self-righteousness, social exclusion, and a general power trip. That's religion. Guys, God hates this. He hates it. And you're like, wait a second. Hold up here. <laughs> I thought God was the one, I thought God invented religion. Isn't God the most religious person out there? Isn't God, isn't God religious? Isn't, isn't religion all about God? No, God hates this. In the Bible, actually, which people use, by the way, for religion, Purposes, religious purposes. In the Bible, religion is mentioned five times. They're all in the New Testament. Four out of the five times that the word religion itself is mentioned, it's in a negative context. It's where Paul's saying, I used to be religious. This is what my religion used to used to tell me and used to used to make me do, essentially. Then there's one time in James where it's actually almost it, it, tongue-in-cheek in a way, because it's the only place in all the Bible that religion is a positive uh, thing, where, where it says pure religion is this. You know, so here's, here's religion. And James twists it, it turns it around, and says, but pure religion is when you care for the orphans. It's when you take care of the widows. Those are the only times that's, that religion is even mentioned in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there isn't even a, a word in Hebrew, actually, that is an equivalent word to our modern day word of religion. It wasn't even a, uh, in their dictionary. Uh, but I want you to turn to Amos. This, there are places where the Hebrew is translated religious when it comes to various ceremonies and different things. And I want to point out this, this one in, relig- in Amos, which will give you a, a good glimpse into the mind of God when it comes to this thing we call religion. Amos chapter, chapter 5, and I don't have the page number, I'm sorry if you don't uh, 
You know where it's at? 820 in the Blue Bibles. Religion, chap- uh, religion chapter 5. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> Turn in your religion to Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 21. He says this, I hate. This is God talking through Amos to the people of Israel, to God's people. He says, I hate. I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, <coughs> excuse me, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. And guys, I encourage you to read the book of Amos this afternoon. Because what you're going to find in there is the problem that God had with Israel is that they didn't care for the orphans. They took advantage of the widows. They trampled over each other to get power. The rulers were all about getting as much as they can get and living as, as great a life as they can live. As comfortable a life as they can live. They hated those who were on the outside. Because these are the same reasons that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he looks at this people, his own people, Israel, who now is using God to accrue power. And they're they're living these self-righteous lives. He looks at them and he says, I hate your worship gatherings. I hate it when when you come together and you sing. I hate it when you offer incense to me. When, I hate it when, when you, when you uh, lift up your hands and praise because the reality is all you do, what you're doing is praising a God that you've invented. A God which is all about you. You're praising yourself. I hate your religious ceremonies, your feasts. I think... The reality here is this, and I want to make this clear. There's kind of a popular phrase in the Christian world, I don't know if you've heard it, but God hates religion. People will say that, which I think is true. But on a a broader scale, uh, at a more pointed scale at the same time, God hates evil. God hates evil. God's wrath burns toward what is evil. N.T. Wright, an amazing scholar, says this on God's wrath, something along the lines, if God does not hate racial prejudice, if God does not hate child abuse, if God does not hate rape and gross immorality, if God does not hate these things, then he is not even a good God. God hates him when we use him for our own good. When we call ourselves Christians, and that's no, that's public. We call ourselves Christians, yet we live like anyone else. We hold animosity in our hearts like anyone else. We don't forgive like anyone else. God hates that. 
when we come together and we are believing in a God which exists solely for us, for our benefit, and we raise our hands and we praise that God, God hates that. Because we're, we've, we've created an idol that we were worshiping. When we use God for our own benefit in any way, to look down on anyone else, to make ourselves feel superior to anyone else, God hates that and his wrath burns against it. The words of, 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 of a hypocrite, when they say, you should love. When they say, you know, here's Jesus and we need to follow Jesus. Here's, here's what justice looks like. We need to love the poor. We need to help the poor. Yet they're building up their bank accounts. And they're living a comfortable life. God hates that. When on uh, Saturday night, you live like a practical atheist. And then on Sunday morning, you believe in God again. God burns against that. Because we've created a God, we've invented a God which we're using to placate ourselves, make ourselves feel bad. It's those words, Jonathan Edwards' words, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Familiar with that statement? We're sinners in the hands of The wrath that we see poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, going back to this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, can we go back in our minds for a second? Go back to Genesis in your mind. Abraham says, God, if there's ten, if, there, if there's ten righteous, will you make everyone else righteous for their sake, on their account? And God says, yes, for ten, I'll, I'll, I'll make it righteous. God goes and he finds zero. <laughs> there is nobody righteous. There's not even one. At which point, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Why is this story recorded for us? Why is this, I mean, not just the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. I think that's, Sodom and Gomorrah is actually the end, or the, the destro destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually the end of the story. That's not the reality of the story. The story is all of this this interaction between God and Abraham that's leading up to, to the destruction of the city. Why is this recorded for us? Why, thousands of years later, did God want us here sitting in, in this rec center in the middle of Baltimore reading this story, asking ourselves, what does this mean? Why? Consequences? Any other thoughts? I think... The reality of, uh, of uh, Abraham falling on his knees and begging God for the city shows us something that, that all of the scriptures have always been pointing toward. I believe, I'm convinced that in this moment that God gifted Abraham, gave Abraham the heart of Jesus. There is no plausible reason why any human would cry out for Sodom and Gomorrah when they are such a terrible city. 
But Abraham is crying out, begging God for it. And I'm convinced that he was given the heart of Jesus in this moment. And you're like, wait a second. Well, God still destroyed the city. Go to turn to Romans chapter 5. with me. Romans 5. Verse 9, it says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? See, we, have, we get this image of, of Christ on the cross, which actually, whoever put this up here, that works. That's a good Christ on the cross, we get this image of Jesus hanging on the cross. Let me ask you this. Why, how, how does Christ hanging on the cross reconcile us with God? Was it, was it the nails that were, that were driven into his hands and his feet? Was it the crown of thorns that was jammed into his skull? No. Just simply the fact that Jesus had nails put in his hands and he had a crown of thorns placed on his head doesn't in and of itself reconcile us with God. Uh, was it simply the fact that Jesus died? No. Just because Jesus died uh, does not mean that we are reconciled with God. Uh, was it the fact that he died the most excruciating death ever? Which I've actually heard somebody say that. That Jesus died the most excruciating death ever, and that's why... Uh, that's how he makes us right with God. It's because uh, he died a worse death than any of us will ever die. And uh, the problem with that is there are other people who have been tortured for a longer amount of time. Even some of his followers who are watching Jesus hang on the cross, because of their deep belief in him, they actually were tortured in a greater way. They were hung upside down until their head exploded. They, were, they had tar slowly poured on them until they died. But Jesus didn't die the most excruciating death. That's not how it, he reconciles us. Why? How does, how does the cross of Christ, how does him hanging on the cross make us right with God? It's because of this. All of the wrath of God, which is built up against evil. See, God loves what's good. Because God is good. But for that very reason, God hates what's evil. And so all of the wrath then that's built up against all that is evil, all that is destructive in life, came at that moment as Christ is hanging on the cross, all of that wrath came crushing down on Christ. As one theologian said, it's as if there's this great dam which has been holding back water for, for ages and ages. And we've seen sprouts of that dam come out in places like Sodom and Gomorrah and other areas where we've seen God's wrath. But the reality is that there's this great dam that's been holding it back. And at the moment that Christ hung on, the, on, on this cross, the dam crumbled, was just complete, it disappeared. And all of that water came crushing down. And just before the water hit him, the ground swallows him up and, and he absorbs every bit of the force of that water. 
why, why did God look away? Why did, when, when Christ was hanging on the cross, why did God turn his head? He couldn't even look. Was it because he, because, because, uh, because it was hard to watch? No. God turned away. Because all of the evil in the world at that moment was placed on Christ. Every bit of our pride, every bit of our selfishness, every bit of our uh, injustice, every bit of our hate towards those that are different, different than us, every, every uh, uh, bit of our hypocrisy, everything. When, 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 when God the Father looked at God the Son, looked at Christ, what did he see? He saw all of that. And he turned away as the wrath was poured out on him. So here's, here's why I uh, don't like religion. Can I tell you why I don't like religion? Can I? Come on. Religion says, obey. Therefore, you will be uh, accepted. Do these things, you know. Uh, don't, don't get drunk. Uh, don't get high. Um. Uh, Stop having sex. Um, go to church. All of these things. Therefore, we obey. Therefore, we are accepted. That's what religion tells us. Whereas the gospel is actually completely the opposite. The gospel says we are accepted. It says that at that moment, all the wrath was poured onto Christ. And because of that, there is no more wrath for us. There's nothing left and so we are accepted, therefore we obey. Religion says that there are two, two types of people. There are us and there are them. Those of us who do good, and then we're accepted. Those who do bad, and then they're not accepted. And so we don't accept them. That's, that's religion. Whereas the gospel... This, this picture of this wrath poured out on Christ, the gospel says that all have fallen short. In the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody was, had fallen short. There were no righteous people in the entire city. <clears throat> the gospel says this, where Abraham failed in begging God for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where he couldn't beg enough, Christ succeeded. Christ was that one righteous person who, because of him, made everyone else righteous. Because of his, uh, on account of this one, everyone else is made righteous. That's what the gospel says. Religion says, and this is, uh, this is why I really hate religion right here. <laughs> religion says that God is there to benefit us. God is here to make our life better 
to give us more stuff, to bless us. That's why God exists. That's what religion says. Whereas the gospel of Christ says that it's, it's entirely up. The gospel of Christ says we worship this God who has given us life. And precisely because of that, we bring glory to the world through benefiting others. The gospel is not about us getting a benefit. The gospel is about us being drawn into the, into the righteousness of Christ, into the family of God, and now, because of that love and because of that grace, making the world around us a better place for everyone. That's the gospel. There's a book called Free of Charge written by a guy named Miroslav Volf, a uh, theologian. And in the book, he talks about uh, the day he was, he was one year old. One, one year old? One years old? I never know how to say one year old. One years old? One year old. He was one year old. I guess that doesn't make sense. He was one years old. That doesn't sound right. I'm just practicing both ways. One year old. It was one year old. Because it's only one singular plural. <laughs> S is a plural. He was one. His brother was five. His brother's name was Daniel. And they were living near an army base. And Daniel would go and he would play with the soldiers on the army base. And uh, one day, Aunt Malika was supposed to be watching Daniel. And Daniel slips out the gate. And he hops on over to play with his soldiers over on the army base. And... Uh, while Aunt Malika didn't know that he was out because she was not paying attention, not doing her job as a babysitter, Daniel, playing with his soldiers, hops onto a, a horse-drawn bread wagon. And they're riding down the cobblestone street. Because it's bumpy, Daniel falls off to the side, and his head gets caught between the wagon and a post. And he died on the way to the hospital. Now, this, this, this life of five years old, which his parents loved, his, his, his parents embraced, was, was, was gone. A brother that both would never know. Now, the amazing thing, as I was reading this story, is that Wolf said that as he was growing up, he never knew that Aunt Malika was partially responsible for the death of his brother. He never knew. Why? Because his parents, even though the, the, the pain of this loss will forever be with them, will forever bring a tear to their eye. His parents forgave Aunt Malika because the blood of Daniel that was on her, her guilt for not paying attention and allowing him to slip out was buried at the foot of the cross and she was declared innocent. And for the rest of their life, the parents looked at Aunt Malika as innocent. 
See, religion doesn't do that. You know, I wonder, I wonder if there is someone here who has been using religion to benefit himself. You've been using God to accrue power. Or you've been, using, you've been using God to just simply keep your conscience clean so you can go about and do whatever you want to do. I implore you to walk away from religiosity and to embrace the grace of the cross. Or is there someone here who's been burned by religion? You've been looked down on. You've been judged and you've been cast out. And you said, I will never have anything to do with religion. I ask you to exchange religion for a relationship with the Creator God. Who as Jesus hung on the cross and all of, our, all of our evil was placed upon him and all of the wrath of God was poured out on him, that same God has turned around and he's looked at you and he said, you are innocent. Innocent. You've done no wrong. Aunt Malika was declared innocent by the parents. Because her sin was buried at the foot of the cross. Christ, as he took our wrath upon him, declared us innocent. Religion, all of this pursuit to please God, to do things, to, to bring uh, God's favor towards us, all of that religion was buried at the foot of the cross. There's nothing there anymore. Religion is completely dead. And all that's left... It's God's grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for grace. For the fact that the, the moment that Christ died on the cross, that we understand that, that wrath uh, was poured out upon him. And that we have been completely, 100% declared innocent. God, we thank you for giving Abraham the heart of Christ to point us towards that which was to come. And God, I do pray that as we uh, start this church here in the middle of Baltimore, as we continue to gather as a community, God, I pray that we will not be a religious community, but that we will be a, truly a community founded on grace and on the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.